how do we help them find the things that they love to do? Because that is what's going to make their life feel worthwhile. To have that kind of sense of, yeah, this is what I really love. I think that's that's what we should be helping children follow all the way through education. Hello and welcome back to the Hannah Frankman podcast. On today's episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Naomi Fisher. Naomi is a clinical psychologist who works with both children and adults, but she's also an expert in the education world, especially self-directed education. She's written a couple of books on the topic, including one of my favorites, Changing Our Minds, which I think is one of the most comprehensive books I've read about how we educate our children, where we go wrong, and some of the things that we can do to fix it. I was really excited to have Naomi on the show to talk about the implications of how the way we educate our kids affects their mental health, both the obvious things like anxiety and depression presenting in our teenagers, but also in in obvious ways like mental health issues that crop up later in life that were perhaps set into motion by the life trajectories and the assumptions that school instilled in us. But we also talked about how Naomi has relocated multiple times so that her children can go to particular schools, including once even moving countries. And we talked about the connection between psychology and education and how, as a psychologist, Naomi got interested in education in the first place. Naomi is an absolute delight to talk to, and I really hope you enjoy listening to this episode. Naomi, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. It's so nice to finally properly meet you. I've been following your work for a very long time. And this is the most fun thing about having a podcast. Of course, I could have DM'd you anyway and requested a Zoom call or something. But to actually have an excuse to talk to people whose work you've admired for a long time is very fun. Um, it's great. And I'm, it? <laughs> it's, it's such fun. Um, and I've been a huge fan of the things that you've put out on Twitter for a long time. Um, I absolutely loved your book, Changing Our Minds. I thought it was an absolute absolutely phenomenal work on how to think about educating kids. Um, The real reason I wanted to have you on today is because I wanted to talk about the mental health side of how we educate our kids. I've had a lot of conversations Mm -hmm. on the show so far with people who are talking about the practical side of things, either the, and by practical, I mean like the tangible academic outcomes or the career outcomes of people who are coming out of different education models but the mental health side of things is incredibly important. And I really am excited to go down the rabbit hole on this with you. I was thinking about who can I have on to talk about mental health and you were the obvious candidate. So I'm very excited that you're here. But before we get into all that, I want to talk about before we started recording, you said that you've just moved and you moved because you were relocating for a school for your kids. And I've had so many conversations over the past year, especially on Twitter with parents who are thinking about moving for their kids. And so we have to talk about this. You just picked up your entire (laughs) life and moved to the middle of nowhere because there was a school that you wanted to send your kids to. Tell me about this. Yeah, it was like doing a giant U-turn. It really was because we were not planning on it. Um, And we only actually thought about it for the first time in June. And then we moved for September for the start of the school year. Um, And I think 
<laughs> it's hard to know. I, I think about this a lot, actually. What is it that's the difference between the people who do that and the people who don't do that? Because, you know, it wasn't easy. Nothing about it was easy. It was an inconvenient decision in many ways. We owned a house. We had a life where we were. We liked where we were. But ultimately, I guess for me, I felt like my kids being in the right place where I feel that they're happy and that getting opportunities that I want them to get is just fundamental. It's kind of the most important thing. And so we, and I think in life you choose, you know, you choose what your values are and you kind of other things fit in around that. And I feel like one of my guiding values as a parent has been trying to open up opportunities for my children, find places where I am happy with how they're treated and where I feel that I really want them to be somewhere where going every day feels like a bonus, you know, like you're, when you're somewhere, you're like, oh, this is a great place to be. I want to be here. That's how I want. Ideally, that is how I would like their whole education to feel. And so, in fact, when we came to visit the school that they're at now, which is Sands School, it's a democratic, in fact, it's pretty well, I think, the only full-time democratic uh, school, day school in the UK that I know of. Um, so a lot of people do move for it. And I spent, I went there, they, they went to do a trial week and I went to visit and I walked in and I was like, oh no, we're going to have to move <laughs> because I just felt this, this is, I just felt like that this is, this, there's an atmosphere there, which is what I was looking for, for them. And then, you know, we, we made everything else happen around that. And it wasn't, was people, I think sometimes people are like, you know, it'd be so difficult. And it was really difficult. So let's say it was really difficult. We didn't have a house to move to when we first moved. We had to stay in an Airbnb for a while. Um, nothing just fell into place, but I think, I still think it was the right thing to do and it was worth doing it. I think that was it. It's just this kind of strength. It's a bit like self-directed learning. I feel it's like, okay, this is kind of where we have to go. So let, let's make it happen. I love this because I think so much of what I am trying to get at in the conversations that I have on Twitter is the fact that you, like every family has a hierarchy of values. Every individual has a hierarchy of values. And often it feels like education sort of falls in this practical bucket more than it does like an mm -hmm. aspirational bucket. It's a thing that you have yeah. to do. There are, you you have to educate your children, but also they need some form of childcare while you're working yeah. all day. There are all of these external expectations around what your child's education ought to be. And so, yeah. so much of it is, well, we like have to fulfill this somehow. And so we're going to choose the yeah. local default option because it's convenient and easy. Yeah. And it's not nearly as much about this is the thing that we value. Like it, it's, it's sort of like the live to work versus work to live. It's like, are we doing the other yeah. things in our life to enable the education or are we yeah. doing the education just kind of like make sure we can do all the other things in life and check all the boxes? Yeah. And so I love that you've completely inverted this because I think a lot of families I talk to want to mm. and they haven't necessarily committed yet to taking the leap. So I think hearing stories like yours is really important. What about walking into the school? How did you know when you walked in that this was the place and you were about to uproot your whole life? I think it was that I walked into the secretary's office and there were two 12 and 13 year olds sitting there drinking tea and chatting. And I just thought, <laughs> and I mean, it's a nice place. It's a lovely rambling house with an outdoor space. And I went in there and it's an, it's a secondary school. So it's for uh, 11 to 17 year olds. And yet when I went in there, I thought this has the, the sort of the best atmosphere of the best 
like schools for younger kids, you know, where you have, there's a rope swing and there's a bouldering wall and there's a, but it's all, obviously it's not like the same as you'd have for small kids. It's not sand pits and water play and that kind of thing, but it's like, it felt like that, but at the level that teenagers need. And that's long what I've thought. That's what I say to people a lot. I think, you know, the only place in the mainstream education system where there's anything that's self-directed, there's any kind of real, any real psychologically informed education is in early years. It's the three and four-year-olds who, if they're lucky, get a time where adults create this great environment and they can make choices within it and their autonomy is valued and their humanity is valued and the adults are there alongside with them, working with them. And then as they go into the school system, that changes and it particularly changes at secondary. You know, once you get to secondary school, I'm sure high schools are the same um, in the US, but once you get to a secondary school, it's all about moving them from class to class and that it's almost set up so that there can't be good relationships between the teachers and the students because they move so much between them. And that was why I really liked Zan School because I went in and there's the, the school administrator <laughs> with these girls. And it was like, and, it, and the room was set up like that. The room up, was set up with a couple of chairs so they could come and sit there and drink tea if that was what they wanted to do. And I just thought, yes, that's the kind of place I want them to be. But this isn't your first time moving for a school. You've done this a couple of times before, including moving countries. Yes. yes. How are you finding these schools that you're relocating for? How am I finding them? Uh, Well, I know quite a lot about self-directed education and schools now. So the the French thing came about, there were a couple of other reasons why we moved to France. It wasn't just, it was just for the school, but... There was this. Uh, there was another reason, which is that um, in 2016 we voted in the UK to leave the European Union, which meant that previous before 2016 we all had the right as British people to go and live and work anywhere in Europe. And once that that vote mean, meant that we were going to lose that right, and we have now lost that right, so we can't do it anymore. So. And I, I really love speaking French. I grew up speaking some French because I grew up in the Congo and I really love living in different countries as well. And I kind of felt like, oh my goodness, this is my chance. You know, I always had this option in my mind. I could go and live in a different European country. That wouldn't be difficult because I don't have to get visas and that kind of thing. And now suddenly they were taking that away. So kind of part of me was like, okay, if we're going to move to France, we have to do it now before they take away our right to do so. So that was part of it. Um, but also, so I've said that in the UK, the, the school that they've just gone to is pretty well the only democratic full-time school that we have in the UK that I know about. There is a boarding school, but this one is the only day school that I know about. But in France, the rules are very different. And so they have many more full-time self-directed democratic schools just because their expe- inspection system works differently and they don't, they don't regulate what kids do at school in quite the same way. So we were home educating before that or homeschooling as you call it. And I knew that I was needed to look for something that had offered my kids a bit more because my kids are really, really different. They like really different things. They always have done. And although everybody says, oh, one to two is a great ratio. It's not a great ratio. If you've got two kids of different ages who like almost diametrically different things, you know? So when we were home educating, a lot of the time we would be Either we would be at home and my daughter would be saying, can we go out? Can we go out? Can we go out? Or we'd be out and my son would be saying, can we go home? Can we go home? Can we go home? And it was like this constant tension of how can I meet these two sets of needs when they almost meet nowhere. So I thought, okay, I need to find a setting where they can go to. So the 
the solution I found was this setting in France, which was an entirely, it was a Sudbury model self-directed school in France where they could go and my daughter could play all day and be out all day. And my son could be in and play Minecraft and things all day. And that was fine. And they did it and they learned French. They both learned French without any lessons. No one had a French lesson, but they learned it through immersion. So yeah, it was. <laughs> and then COVID came along, which kind of put an end to that. So then we had to come back to the UK because of that. Mm-hmm. What advice would you have? I know this is a very broad question, but again, I talked to a lot of parents who are not happy with the education options that exist locally. Maybe they're in a place that doesn't have a lot to begin with or just doesn't mesh with their needs. And for whatever reason, homeschooling doesn't fulfill their education desires and they don't want to do something online. What advice would you give a parent who's starting the process of thinking about relocating for a school but is very nervous or reticent about the thought of completely uprooting their whole life or maybe is also afraid, okay, we're going to move to another county or another state for this school. And then what if we don't like it when we get there? What if it's not a fit? Um, Like people relocate for jobs, but the financial incentives are very different. You're getting paid to go. You're not paying to go. It's a different story. It's true. It's a big leap. You have to, and I think one of the things, I mean, we didn't do that this time, but when we moved to France, one of the things that made it possible is we decided, we actually went for two months initially. So we basically said, okay, we're just going to go, this is going to be a trial. We'll try it out. We'll see whether we think we could live here. We think this could work. And the other thing, the other thing that's really changed is that when we when we moved to France, it was before COVID and my husband still had to work in England, in London. So he was actually coming back and forth. There's a train from Paris to London. So he was coming back and forth and still working in London. And I started working remotely at the time. So the big difference, one big thing that has happened for us due to COVID is that both of us are now working remotely, which suddenly meant we have this potential to move. Otherwise we couldn't have moved to Devon because there aren't jobs that we could do here really. Or actually for me, there are, but not for him. Um, But I think it can help to think about it. It really helped us with France. There's no way we could have just moved France just like that. It was such a big thing to do, but to go for two months, we were like, okay, we can just see it as a extended holiday experiment trial just to see what it's like. Cause you know, who's going to regret spending a couple of months living in France. That's going to be okay. And then if that works out, then we'll try it again. And I felt for us anyway, that kind of stepped approach made it, made it possible. But then with this one, we've gone completely, we've just kind of like gone for it and done it. So I I think it depends on you and how you manage change. But I think definitely that setting yourself as a, we'll just try this out, give ourselves a chance. But also I think you have to be realistic that it won't immediately be better in every way. Things won't, you know, you will be leaving roots and friends and family maybe, and there, and there is going to be a really bumpy adjustment phase, I think. And I, that's certainly been the case. I think every time we've moved, every place we've been, my children have initially said, why have we done this? Let's go back. And, and that's just sort of part of the process of adjusting to somewhere new. What about, how do you think about the the cost benefit analysis of doing this? Like you've made it very clear that you want your children to have an amazing educational experience. You want them to love the act of going to school every day. Mm. But there also are, there are other good things that I'm sure you're leaving behind in every place. You're leaving a home, you're leaving friends, you're leaving a community, you're leaving work infrastructure. Even if you're able to take your work remotely, that's hard. How do you, like, are there 
things that have been tough to weigh in the cost benefit analysis. Cause I think that's another place that a lot of people get stuck in this process. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is. I think we, we, we left somewhere where both the children were happy. They had friends also where things were very convenient. We could get around. We, but I had friends, we were close to London. There were loads and loads of benefits. Um, and I don't, I mean, I don't think there's any way to weigh it up that works for everyone. I think you just have to, at some level, you go with your gut. And that was what we did, really. It was just like, which I thought, I think I asked myself, when I look back in a couple of years, which way am I likely to regret not having tried? And generally, I mean, for me, but if, I think, you know, it's partly who I am because I grew up, I went to 11 different schools as a child. So I grew up moving around and we moved country. My parents moved country several times. I lived in the Congo, I lived in Botswana. Um, so for me, the whole moving thing isn't, doesn't feel as difficult, I think, psychologically as it might to other people. In fact, I almost think staying somewhere might feel more difficult psychologically. You know, it's kind of like, I, I see the benefits of moving on each place that we go, but but I think for some people, you might not see that. You might you not have that in the same way. And I suppose for me, when I'm thinking about the future, when I'm thinking in a couple of years, what will I regret having done or not having done? And usually I just think, choose the more adventurous option. <laughs> That's kind of my guiding good deal. Let's Let's do the more adventurous one because what's the worst that could happen? It goes wrong. Okay. But we'll have tried the adventure. Whereas if we don't do it, we'll never know. I love that. And it, I think there's also, there's such a set of skills that you're also, they're definitely not necessary for your children to be exposed to, but they're certainly being exposed to by mm. learning how to be comfortable moving, which is a thing that people do many times over the course of their lives. Um, yeah. I didn't move at all when I was a child. So when I was an adult, it was a very new thing to be relocated. And I went hard on like the, I went like full pivot. I became a nomad for a while. Cause I was like, I just need to experience like oh, the wow. polar opposite of being stationary. Yeah. And it was also yeah. just an intuition thing. I was like, this just sounds like fun. I want to have the adventure, but your yeah. kids are learning how to be comfortable relocating. They're going to be probably more comfortable saying yes to opportunities that require going somewhere else. They're learning how to integrate into a new place, both geographically and also socially. Like I imagine there are a lot of very fun benefits that come along with this as well, besides it just being, you know, the memoir will be more interesting someday. With <laughs> yeah, all the different I hope, I hope so. You know, it always, you hope that's going to be the scenario and it's not going to be what I, what I remember is moving and it just getting worse and never getting better again. You hope that's not <laughs> going to be. There were so many boxes. It was terrible. Yes, exactly. We never got out the boxes. They kept on moving. Yeah. You know, you can't predict these things. You can just do, you can never be sure. I think, and you can never be sure what your children are going to look back and think. And whether they're going to look back and say, oh, that was the right thing to do. That was the wrong thing. You know, you just have to make the best decision you can at the time with the information you've got, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Which is at the end of the day, that's all every parent is yeah. endeavoring to do. It's the best you can do. Um, yeah. I want to talk a little bit about your background too and the work that you do before we get super in the weeds on the mm -hmm. mental health stuff. Yeah. Um, because you just alluded to the fact that you bounced between a bunch of schools. I know that that was formative for you and how you think about education overall, seeing all of these different yeah. environments, um, all these different right ways of doing things that were perhaps sometimes contradictory to each other. So they can't exactly. both be the absolute truth. Yeah. Um, but you're trained as a clinical psychologist. Yes. And yet you have this very strong interest in education. And I want to know yes. more about how you ended up feeling so strongly about both of these things, how this became your path, 
where these connections mm. are that you see between these two arenas that made this become your life's work. Yeah. So, yeah, so I'm a clinical psychologist, which means that I specialize in mental health and um, not there is a, in the UK, at least we have a whole separate section of psychology. So edu- educational psychologists, they specialize in education. That isn't me. That's not what I do. Um, and I think, so I have a PhD in developmental psychology and with autism developmental psychology, as well as my doctorate in clinical psychology. So I did a kind of research doctorate first. And when I was learnt doing that doctorate about developmental psychology, there was a lot in that about how young children learn and how, well, just how humans learn really, but particularly how children learn. And at no point in any psychology that I've ever studied have they said, right, we've cracked it. The best way to get children to learn is to put them in rows, tell them stuff and get them to repeat it. Never. It never came up. But it also never came up in all the child development literature that I read. It never came up that all the children that they were looking at had been to school. And as I got to the point where I was thinking about my own children and sending them going to school, um, I was kind of conflicted because I could see, you know, I could see the path that was ahead of them, had a place at local school, but I also had all this information that I'd learned about how children learn and it didn't measure up with what they were going to be taught, how school was going to work, you know, in a number of different ways. But one particular way was how they took learning out of context. Schools take learning out of context. So up to the age of about four or five my son had just learned everything from the world around him because it was useful to him. Get to school and they gave us a list of words, keywords, and they were words like the, but, if. And they said, if you could teach them these over the summer, that would be really good when they come in. And I was like, how am I going to teach my very active, he was three at the time, three-year-old, these completely random words, which are going to be meaningless to him. No he has no motivation for doing that at all. I could see we could spend our whole summer with me worrying about these words. Like, when are we going to learn these words and him not learning the words? And it was a kind of almost a four, a four, what's the word? You know, like um, a premonition of what this all could be like. The school years could be me trying to force him to learn stuff, which actually I don't think is a good use of his time. And I don't think is what actually four-year-olds or three-year-olds need to be learning because it doesn't, it doesn't chime with what I know about child psychology and how children learn. And yet I'm going to be put in this role as the parent of being the kind of enforcer of this. I'm going to have to be the one telling him he's got to do his reading diary or he's got to do this and this. And I just thought, no, <laughs> I'm not going to do this. Um, and I guess it's a bit like the moving house when I think, actually, no, I don't think this is the right thing to do. I kind of find it very hard to stick with doing something that I don't think is right. Um, so we would, what were we talking about? I've lost my track because I've gone on talking about my son. So it was me and clinical psychology and how I got, yeah, yeah. So basically, so it was the bringing together of me already with my clinical psychology background, my developmental psychology background, having my own children, thinking, no, school doesn't really do, it doesn't, it doesn't meet my, it doesn't really, it isn't aligned with my values in terms of what I think my children should be doing and what I, would think is a kind of optimal educational experience for them. So I decided to home educate them. Um, And I guess slightly naively, when I started off home educating them, I thought like lots of parents think 
oh, I'll keep them out of school till they're maybe seven and we'll do loads of play and then maybe they'll be more ready for formal schooling. They'll be ready for formal education. And by the time they got to seven, it was like they had diverged so much more from school than, you know, it there was just... <laughs> Whereas when they were five, I could just about see it. When they were seven, I was like, there's no way I could see this working. Also, because, of course, the school children had been schooled for two, you know, they'd been trained by this point. My children were literally untrained, really untrained. And it was, and, and that was the point where I started to think, you know, all this stuff I've learned about child development as a clinical psychologist, as a developmental psychologist, they never said this is about child development in the context of school. All these children went to school 30 hours plus a week for their whole childhoods. And yet we're all behaving as if that makes no difference. And I I was just like watching my own children develop. There were so many things that were different and that I hadn't realized were school. You know, I think we make, we all make so many assumptions. Maybe you don't because you didn't go to school. But those of us who are schooled, we learn a lot about how school works and what why important school is. You know, we learn things like uh, if you're not made to do things, you'll never learn. And you can't just do act on a whim all the time. And it matters if you're clever or not clever. And, you know, you have to compare yourselves against different people and you can't, yeah, we just learn a lot of things about learning in ourselves. And I just thought, no, this isn't what I want to be. <laughs> this isn't what we want to do. So we're not going to do it. So then as I've watched my children grow, because they're now teenagers, the more I watched them developing outside school, the more I became convinced that there was a real story here about psychology and how actually a lot of the way, the way that school worked was basically undermining really basic psychological needs for young people and actually making learning more difficult whilst appearing to make it easier and more efficient. Actually, what it was doing was making learning harder. And that's where my book came in, really. Can you talk a little bit about how you said that when you were in, you know, you were looking at education through the lens of psychology, looking at childhood de development through yeah. the lens of psychology and the educational component of their upbringing wasn't really being properly accounted for. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that? You mean in the developmental, you mean in the literature, the child development research? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean that, for example, so when I did my, I did my PhD on children uh, children with learning disabilities. I saw about 300 children. I recruited those children through schools because that's what you do. You go to schools and you find the children. Okay, so then you give these children all sorts of tests and you make lots of conclusions about how children think and how children learn. But all of those, I didn't ever look at a group of children who weren't going to school. And when we're talking about child development, or say, say I see someone as a psychologist, say someone comes along to me and says, my child's really anxious, can you help them? And I do say 20 hours of work with them. That would be a lot of work as an individual child psychologist. 20 hours of intervention would be, oh, that that's a big amount of work. That should make quite a big difference. But children are going to school for 30 hours a week, most weeks. And yet we're behaving as if that doesn't make a difference. It's like, um, have you heard Carol Black's analogy where she says that studying children in school is like studying the behavior of orcas in an aquarium? And we study the behavior of orcas in an aquarium. And then we say, this is, we know how orcas behave. And yet, well, all we really know is how children behave with, with when this is their life. 
when they're in the context of school and when they're having all they're learning the things that children learn at school we don't know really much about what happens to children when that doesn't happen to them because we don't even know it's a question to ask i think that's the thing psychologists don't even realize it's a question because school's invisible every school's invisible in the sense that it doesn't occur to you that there might be children who don't go to school do you know what i mean i know that probably doesn't yeah. make sense to you because you know no, it actually makes a lot of sense because I I actually come from a, a very large family of very highly educated people. My my immediate family is very much the the aberration in the okay. family. Yeah. Most of my extended family has, you know, PhDs and are educators or psychologists or whatever. So this actually makes yeah. a lot of sense to me. Is it because do you think that everyone who makes it to the level of being a, a researching psychologist is so hyper-educated that they yeah. haven't seen anything other than. And so it's just a default. It, it feels like an indivisible truth about how the world works that just every kid goes to school. Where does this come from? Yeah, I think, well, I think one of the things that we learn at school is that school is really important and everybody should be at school. And that if you're not at school, you're just not learning. So we just, I think I, I felt this a bit when I didn't send my children to school. It's like, if you don't send someone to school, there's just an absence of school. We don't have a model. I think this is what I'm trying to do in my books in a way. I'm trying to say, okay, if you don't go to school, what are you doing instead? Because it's not just an absence of school. You know, it's like there's so much other, there's so much else that goes on. And how does a child actually learn when they're not being schooled? And I think, yeah, I think I think that school does a really good job in indoctrinating people into the importance of school. And it even actually, I even think it does this really well for people who don't do well at school. Like often if I talk to parents who haven't done well at school, they are sometimes the most convinced that their child must be in school. There's a really negative rhetoric about young people who don't who drop out of school. Like dropout is in itself a negative thing, isn't it? To stop going to school is a negative thing. You are immediately lots of projections about how you're going to be a loser, basically. How And I, I read all that as well. And I was like, but it doesn't make sense because I can see home educated young people and that isn't happening for them. I could, so it can't be the case that school is so essential. You know, there's, it's, it can't be the case that, that, that this school building has something magical about it, which everybody must be in. And also that it's only good for children. I think that's the other thing that, um, maybe highly educated people, yeah, the fact that it's highly educated people who make the decisions generally on a government level, on an education level, it's very rarely the educational failures who make decisions about what will happen to the next generation. And so everybody assumes that it's a really good place to be. They had good experiences there. Everybody should have experiences like them. And that no one ever comes along and says, actually, you know what? The school, my school years were some of the worst of my life. And how could it have been different for me? I think that that point that you just made about it being the very highly educated people making the decisions is really important. I just had uh, my friend Graham Fry on the podcast who is, he's been running, he's been head of schools of a bunch of different schools. He's been running different schools and programs for probably three decades now. And he was talking about how he was in a room full of people debating um, like what should be like decisions that should be made in this new education project. And 
he said that he asked everybody in the room, like how many of you did really well in school and every hand went up. Everybody was very proud of it. How many of you went to college? Like they'd all gone like, well, I went to MIT. I went to Brown. I'm very, you know, I'm very qualified. Um, And his point was, no, you're not because you don't know what it's like to be a struggling child. You only know how the mechanics of this process work if you are doing well. The system is designed for you but it's not yeah. designed for everyone. And that's important to break down too. So I think, I think that that's a really important point that sort of gets swept under the rug. Or it's not, it's not even like it gets swept under the rug. Like you just sort of have to like really examine what is going on in order to even see that that's one of the, one of the dynamics at play. Like it's mm. not, it's not obvious if you're no, not really because, looking because for people it. who've people who do well at school assume that they should be making decisions for everybody else. Because one of the things you learn at school is that if you do well at school, you are better than everybody else. You have better, you're better educated. So you are more qualified to make those decisions. So it's like you're trained to think we are the best. We are the people who can make these decisions best. Of course we are. So why would we ask those people who failed at school? And I think it's a good point that you made there. And I think, um, it's a form of diversity, which is just not valued anywhere. Like, you know, they go on and on about, well, there's there's, lot, there's rightfully a lot more attention to different forms of diversity, for example, in parliament, in government, about all sorts of different kinds of diversity in terms of, you know, sex, race, class even, but educational achievement. No one ever starts thinking, oh, we really need to increase the number of people who dropped out of school with no GCSEs in our parliament, do they? (laughs) No one ever says that. (laughs) But those are the people who are missing. They're missing completely from public discourse in the terms of the power structure. Right. And yet they're disproportionately represented (laughs) in places of high innovation, like places that where people are are not just working inside of the system, but are innovating and building something new, whether it's new companies or exploring new yeah, ideas, yeah. um, building new technology. There's this very disproportionate to the rest of the, of the workforce. Although those are the successes too, right? I yes. would say oh, part of, of our diversity is we need to have the people who are really not successful. So we need to oh, have yeah. the people who are homeless or who are, you know, <laughs> because... They're the people who can really tell you what it's like for things to have gone wrong. Yes. Yeah. My point is more that there are people who are like, there, there is, you know, the success stories exist. They just tend yeah. to deviate from the system anyway, because they don't see the point of it. Yes. They're unlikely to be get traditional power structures. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, I also, I find it really interesting. Not only is it, you know, the, the people making the decisions are very heavily educated, but there's just a lot more data and research and evidence on the outcomes inside of the system than there are outside of the system. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's it's hard to find really clear cut data on like there's there's good data on Sudbury schools because they've been around for a while. And so there are, yeah. you know, years of track records to look through. But there are a lot of newer models that just don't have the the, the time has not elapsed yet to accumulate data yeah. on outcomes. But even for things that do have years of of accumulated data, like homeschoolers, for example, mm. um there's not a, a nearly as much great research that's been done on mm. the outcomes. Um, a lot of it's anecdotal, 
Yeah. Like people, college admissions, people will say, oh, we love homeschoolers because X, Y, and Z, but that's an anecdote. That's not formulaic research. Can you speak a little bit to this too? Because I know you've gone deep down the rabbit hole of the different research that exists on different models, both in the writing of your book, but also the work you've done more broadly. Yeah. It's very hard to research because of this question of what is your outcome, really? I mean, you've just alluded to it, the fact that many young people or older older people are succeeding in very different ways that aren't particularly conventional. And schools tend to measure outcome in terms of test data. How well did our young people do on these tests? And the minute that as a, at a Sudbury school or a home edu- homeschoolers or whatever, the moment you decide to do that and take a test score as your outcome, you've basically defined yourself in terms of school. You've said the outcome that we value is the outcome that school values which has immediately almost invalidated your project in a way, I think, because it's like saying this was just a different way to the same end. And I don't think it is. I think it's a different way to a different end. But those are many, many different ends. It's not like they're all, you know, there's there's no single metric because the problem is, so you say, okay, we're not going to use that same measure because it's a school-based measure and that isn't how we measure the success of education. But then you have to find another way to measure the success of education. And it's not one then that you can compare to schools. So there's a sort of intrinsic problem in doing much, in doing research because of this issue of outcome and what does a valued outcome be. Would I mean, I think when it comes to something like education, I think we need to be looking much more widely than we are anyway in education in the education research, because a test score tells you just so little about that person and what they value and what has what their education has been like, but also about what's going to happen to them in the future and whether their life is going to be the kind of life they want. You know, as a tend, we tend to have an assumption that if you get good exam results, that means you're sorted. But actually, for lots of people, it doesn't necessarily mean that. You know, people have all sorts of different paths. But anyway, yes, so th- I think that is a problem. There's a bit, there is a problem, but I can't really see a very simple way out of it because of the issue of what is our, what is our outcome? How do we know what we're measuring? I know this is an absolutely enormous question that I'm about to spring on you, but um, what do you think the most important things are? And this is highly subjective too, mm-hmm. but what do you think the most important things are that we should be looking at if we start to deviate away from test scores being the ultimate metric to life success or college admissions rates or college graduation rates or the very standard traditional career trajectories that we have historically used as a metric for successful education outcomes. If those are not nearly as comprehensive and exhaustive as we maybe mm. have defaulted to trusting them to be. What are some of the other things that are useful to at least think about looking at when thinking about, okay, if I'm choosing an educational path for my child and I'm looking at other people who have walked this path, what yeah. are the what indicators in their future outcomes that show that this path worked for them? Mm. So, I mean, I think I would probably base mine on self-determination theory, which is a theory of psychological flourishing. And I think I would be saying, are young people coming out of their education 
feeling that they are the driver in their learning, feeling that they are the person who can make decisions? Are they coming out of their learning feeling that they are capable of learning? And I think this is where our, unfortunately, mainstream school really falls down in that I think a lot of young people come out of eight, you know, six, 12, 14 years of school feeling like they're rubbish at learning feeling that they're no good at it. And I would like that to be completely flipped around. I would see a successful education system as one where young people at all levels of ability came out thinking, yeah, I can do things. I can imp- I can learn, you know, whether whatever level it's at, whether it's I can go and get a PhD in physics or whether it's I can learn how to cake, cake, cook a cake. You know, it's that sense, they call it competence in the self-determination theory, the sense that I am capable of doing things. And I would like to see that as a really fundamental part of it. And then the last, the the three in self-determination theory, the last one is a sense of relatedness and belonging to your community. So a sense of connection with the world and with other people. And I think those are the three things that I would really be looking for. for. And I certainly, when I'm looking at educational settings, like when I'm looking at settings for my own children, my question for myself really is always, what are the relationships like here between adults and young people? And are young people being forced to do things here? Those are my two absolute fundamentals. And what I mean by forced to do things, I, I mean that in a much wider sense than lots of people would. I basically mean, can they leave if they want to? If they're in a lesson and they think this is boring, can they go or are they stuck in there? And if they're stuck in there, then that's probably not, a. I think that's immediately a problem for their learning. I think there needs that. And that's where autonomy comes in. That's where this sense of, I am the person here who can make decisions actually about whether this is worthwhile for me or not. And I feel like that's something I really struggled to learn as an adult. You know, I was really trained into being at school, no matter what, attending lessons. No, you know, you didn't have a choice. And it was very hard for me to be able to sit in something now, even a lecture and think, you know what, actually, I'm not getting anything out of this. I'm going to go I find that really hard. I find that I've got to stay to the end, even if it feels like a waste of my time. And I think that ability to say, no, this isn't the right thing for me right now. I'm off is actually really, really a good outcome. I would see that as a really great outcome. What is the argument for not being able to leave a classroom environment that a child sees as being not useful or interesting to them? Why is that important for their actual capacity to learn? What well, from, from my perspective. So it's because, yeah. ba- basically because... Self, um, what we know is that when a person chooses to do something and is doing it for their own purposes, their learning is of a higher quality. When somebody is made to do something, the learning immediately becomes of a lower quality um, in most cases. But also if they're doing the learning for an outcome rather than because of the process, it also becomes a lower quality generally. And I think most of us know this when we think about it. It's like, I I talk about it in the book with reading, actually, that I was a passionate reader as a child. I loved reading. I was reading all the time until I was told at school, you must read this book. And the moment I was told you must read this book, the book lost some of its interest for me. And when we oblige children to do things all the time, we we don't allow them to opt into it. You know, there's something so important about saying, I want to read that and I'm going to read that. And you've taken that away from them when you've said, you must read this. And there's no choice about it. And the moment you do that, you change their relationship with what they're doing. So it's no longer I'm doing this because I'm it's valuable to me. It's I'm doing this because somebody has made me do it. And that will lower the quality of their motivation. 
the research just finds that across the board. The moment you start obliging people for making people do things, the quality of their motivation falls. So we've got an education system based on the on the idea we must oblige children to do things and the quality of their motivation falls. And you can see that happening through this. You can see it happening as they grow up. You know, when they're little, they're, they're still really usually motivated and learning and excited about it. And then by the time they're 13 and 14, they're just like, no, <laughs> no, I don't, I'm not interested. I'm going through, I'm going through the motions here because I've got to. And I think that's, that's, well, that's why to me, it's so important that they can leave because by being able to leave, you have, it's, you've changed the relationship of that young person to the classroom because now they're there because they want to be, not there because they're made to be. That I think is one of the, the point that you just made. I think it needs to be, like, I think there are a handful of things that parents need to be exposed to, to start to reaffirm some of the intuitions that they have about school being problematic for mm -hmm. their kids. Um, and problematic can lie anywhere on a spectrum from, you know, very gently detrimental, but it's not causing, not wreaking absolute havoc to like, this is, you know, a potentially <laughs> fatal disaster yeah. for my yeah. child. Like there is, there's a whole spectrum here, but I think that there are, I think a lot of parents do have an intuition about what you just said. Mm -hmm. I think parents have a lot of intuitions about the the problems that exist inside of this system. And I have believed that for a long time, but spending so much time over the past year and a half talking to parents has really reaffirmed that for me, that a lot of people suspect that there are issues with the way information is being presented to their kids, the way the entire system is structured, the expectations we put on kids and the validity of them. But, you know, to our point earlier, there's not necessarily a ton of research on it. If there is, it's not easy to find. It's certainly not accessible to the average parent, which is part of why I think the book that you've written is so incredibly important because it makes this accessible and reaffirms those intuitions. But I think parents also have a lot of intuitions about the implications psychologically on kids from the system, which is really the meat of what I want to get into here with you. Mm. I, and I say that for a couple of reasons. One, again, just like talking to parents, it's obvious that it's there. But two, whenever I post something about the mental health implications of school, it pretty consistently blows up. And I think it's because it's, it hits a nerve. People, people suspect that this is happening but I don't think a lot of people know the extent mm -hmm. and they don't know where the lines are between anecdote that doesn't really relate to their child versus experience their child is actually having. Um, what is teenage melodrama versus what's an actual problem? Like there are lots of blurred lines where, where do I defer to the person who's put in front of me as an expert to support me versus where do I defer to my own intuition that something is not right? Um, there's a lot here that I want to get into, but maybe maybe we start very broadly. Um, what are some of the biggest, in, in the work that you have done, both as a psychologist and also as someone who's gone deep, deep down the rabbit hole, educate or researching education, what are some of the biggest ways that you see the system as it stands undermining and corroding the mental health of our kids? So... 
I think we have a system that focuses on um, achievement and comparisons over other things. So right from the moment that kids go into school, they're learning to compare themselves to others of their age group. And even, you know, that schools sometimes try and hide from kids that they are doing it, but schools are comparing children against their uh, their age group as well. And they are certainly in the UK, they're doing things like dividing them into little groups dependent on their ability. You know, they called them things like the kangaroos and the rabbits to pretend that they're not the ones that they think are doing best and the ones that they think are doing worse. But the kids, the research shows that the kids know. And from very early on, kids will be able to tell you from about six, age six, children will be able to tell you who are the clever ones in the class and who are the not so clever ones in the class. They'll be able to tell you who the popular ones in the class, who the not so popular ones. And they'll be able to tell you who the teacher likes and who the teacher doesn't like. So there's a kind of a really insidious ranking against other children of your age that happens from very, very early on. And I think that is a really kind of corrosive thing to do to young people. Actually, at every level of it, of the ability spectrum, it's a difficult, it's a, it's a corrosive thing in terms of mental health, because what the, the research shows on um, comparisons and inequality in mental health is that when you've got a sort of system where status, there's, there's differences in status and people will become anxious about their status, basically. So even the people who are doing really well will be worried about no longer doing really well and not being as, you know, not going to, not succeeding as they are at the moment. And the ones at the bottom are worried because they can never get anywhere up. So you're kind of, you've created this system where it's not just about being at school and doing stuff. It's about where does that rank you against everyone else? And I think that's a corrosive thing for mental health. Um, and that happens right from early on. But then we've also got behavioural systems which effectively use anxiety and shame to try and control children's behaviour. Because the way I think about it is that if you put children into an environment where you're trying to teach them things that they don't really have interest in yet, so you're trying to teach them reading, for example, before they really see the purpose in needing to read, you're trying to teach them maths before they really see the purpose in needing to add and subtract, you've created a problem for yourself because you've got a group of children who don't see the point in what they're doing yet. Just because they're young, that's just how children are. So then what you have to do in order to make them do the things that you want them to do is you have to control their behavior. And the way that schools have found to control the behavior is by using um, shame and shame and um, and anxiety. So children get in trouble if they don't do the things they're meant to be doing. They're rewarded if they do do the things they're meant to be doing, which also creates anxiety, the, the sort of, will I get the reward again? And that lots of schools here have like public behavior charts on the walls. So there'll be like a sun, you know, a rain cloud with the sun. And if you're good all day, you'll be on the sun. And if you do something wrong, you go down to the rain cloud. And it's, they are, schools are deliberately using anxiety and shame to try and get children to behave. And I don't think teachers think of it like that. I don't think teachers think, oh, I'm going to make these children anxious today and they'll behave. But that is what they're doing, you know, and that's, if you talk to parents, that's what they'll say. They'll say, my child lies awake at night worrying that tomorrow they might be moved off the sun or they lie awake, they go to school chewing their sleeves because they're so worried about getting too wrong in their spelling test. So we've kind of got this very pressured system right from early on um, because we've prioritised academic test-taking curriculum over 
other kinds of learning and other oh, mental mental well-being really we've we've behaved as if mental well-being emotional well-being can be taken out of the equation and you can just get on with learning and and brains don't work like that you know brains are kind of a whole thing everything is connected to each other and actually if you're highly anxious you don't learn very well so I think it's misguided again, because I think it's, it's this idea that you can just sort of take this bit of children's brains and you just educate that part. And that's about information getting is where it's going at the moment, learning knowledge, being tested on your knowledge. Um, but in order to do that, they, the impact on their mental health is, is significant, I think. And that, and that's not really counted. So when you look at research, when people talk about evidence-based education, they will typically be looking at exam results, test results, and they won't even look at mental health. That's not an outcome. That's not something that comes into the equation. And I, one of the things that got me into this area actually was working in a so working in our health service here um, as a clinical psychologist. I was seeing quite a lot of children and teenagers, and they were mostly very unhappy. And they were telling me real big stories about how bad they found school, how difficult they found school, how unhappy they were. And I was thinking, nobody is asking me for any feedback on this. There's no feedback loop here. I can't go back. I can't tell the schools. The schools aren't interested. There's no way of saying to the school, did you know that when you brought in that behavior chart, for example, or when you decided that all of your year 10s are going to do GCSE maths a year early, that there's a real spike in anxiety, which I'm seeing over here in my clinic. No one, there's no feedback loop. There's, it's not even considered. Mental health is not part of how we evaluate education. So it's just absent. So it means that people who are putting educational interventions in place, I don't think they even think what's going to be the mental health implication of that. What's that effect on the emotional well-being of the kids going to be? Because that's just not, that's not what gets published in the newspapers. That's not where the out, you know, that's not how schools get compared on. But why don't they? Like, why, why is this a thing? I have a lot of thoughts about what you just said, but this feels like the most burning question. Why don't we care? Well, because maybe as a society, that isn't something we value very much. We don't care about, I don't think we have a society that is set up to think about human flourishing. It's not the fundamental. The fundamental is performance, productivity, achievement. And that's the education system that we're, people often say to me whenever I talk about uh, my any ideas about education they say what about the real world what are they going to do when they get into the real world and the real world always sounds like a terrible place from how they describe it because it's a, basically a place where you are forced to do things that you do not want to do all day and and you know if we don't spend our child's childhood training them to do that then what disaster would there be but i just think it's just never been a priority it's not what the, it's not what the school system was set up for you know, when they when they set up the school system, they didn't think, how can we provide the best environment for our young people to flourish and grow? I think they were just thinking, what are we going to do with these kids who can't, we've just had brought in child labor laws, so they can't be at work. We want them to be able to read and write. What's going to be an efficient way to do that? I think that's what it was, where it was. It wasn't about human flourishing. And I think it never has been. Can you talk a little bit about how you would define the distinction between productivity versus flourishing? Because I think it's not necessarily a clean cut line between the two for the average person. I think it, obviously there's a difference, but I think 
as a society, we have so ingrained productivity as being synonymous with flourishing. Like we're getting lots done, so we must be doing ah, well. Uh, yeah, can you can you talk about this a little bit? Okay, so I would see psychological flourishing as an internal thing. Really, I think you can be psychologically flourishing and not productive at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you can certainly be very I'm inclined pro- to agree, <laughs> but I come from a very different background. From yeah, the that's a really model. interesting point. Yes. So I would definitely, I think when you're psychologically flourishing, you're in a place where you feel that you're living a values-based life, actually, that you can make decisions based on your values, that you feel that you are the person who has some some capacity to do that, that you feel good about yourself um, and that you feel that you're a person who can affect change on the world, that you can make things happen in your life. I think that's a really important thing for humans to have this sense of, of it's power really, but it's just sort of internal. I can make, I can change things. I can make things better. And I think unfortunately what happens at school is we kind of inculcate into children this idea that they can't have much of a choice. They can't make things better, that their role is to do what they're told to do as well as they can do it. And that's what we call responsibility in it for them in education or even self-regulation. We call it them doing what adults want them to do as well as they can do it. And I think that's productivity, really. Productivity is doing what somebody else wants you to do and producing stuff. Whereas flourishing is a kind of internal state of feeling able to do things. And you might do them or you might not, but you could still be flourishing either way. I love this distinction. And I think that this is really important. And I think I have a lot of thoughts about this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think that we, I think a lot of, people go through a system that never gives them the tools to even grapple with what you just said. Mm. Like it makes sense to hear it, but it's not something I talk to so many people who have exited the system at some point in their path. Maybe it's they had children and they decided that they didn't want them going to the same type of schooling environment that they went to. And so they exit the path there for some of them, I have friends. I live in Austin, Texas now, which is sort of a magnet for people who are doing unusual things that are comfortable being a little bit dissident. So I meet a lot of people who've stepped off of the traditional career path at some point in their journey. Often it was not at the beginning. They often went and worked at a high-level consulting firm or something and did all the things they were supposed to do. And then they said, wait a second, this is, why am I not happy? Yes. Why do I wake up in the morning and feel miserable? Why am I depressed on Saturday night? This is, this, I was promised something that I, a level of happiness was assumed in what I was promised that I have not received. Yes. And so they start to step off of the path. But if you haven't gone through that process of actively deviating, it's not like nobody ever talks about flourishing the way that you just described it. And it seems to me like this ought to be a thing that we're all striving for, right? Like this is this is the goal is mm-hmm. to feel happy and fulfilled, to wake up in the morning and be glad you're here, the way that you described what you want for your kids and their schooling environments. And yet we use productivity as a proxy for that because I think a lot of people don't know how to go about, like it's very hard to go from zero to 60 in chasing flourishing if all you've ever known is well if 
like you don't have to have an internalized sense of what you want or what you value if you just keep like doing these things that we're telling you you should do in order to be okay. Like if you check all the boxes, if you get straight A's, if you go to the good college, you'll be fine. Like you you don't have to figure it out. And so there's so much of the like internal self-knowledge work that gets missed too in this process of going from being an an infant that, you know, is sustaining off of another human and can't be self-sufficient to an 18-year-old that's launching out into the world as an adult and really should have their own internal compass. Um, But you know what's interesting? (laughs) Three and four-year-olds, they generally have a really good internal compass in my experience. They are the most the the children I meet who are most driven, most committed to what they like and what they want to do are usually those young children. And I think, I think we lose it. I think we lose it through school because you said something which I really which really resonated me with, with me there. That thing of people getting to the point of like having the consultancy job and having the money and having the status and being like, this isn't what I was promised. And I think. That's the problem with, that's the thing of school, isn't it? It's like, it's all about a promise. It's all, you do this now because you need to do this to have a good job. You'll do this now. I know you don't want to do it now, but do it now because if you do that, then you'll have a good career. And it's all about this promise of another time. And then you get to that point. And I think it often is the kind of high achievers who get there and they're like, I did it all right. When's the moment when this is meant to start being fun again? You know, when do I go back yeah. to how fun it was when I was three and I could play in the sandpit and it doesn't get back to that. And I feel, I mean, I personally, I feel I was very lucky because I went to university. So I was definitely would count myself as one of these people who lost an internal compass in terms of what I really love to do. Um, I went through school system. I did really well, mostly all the way along, but I chose things. I didn't choose the things I did mostly because I really loved to do them. I chose them for other reasons like status or what, you know, because I thought I would do well on them, all sorts of reasons. And I got to the point of going to university and I didn't really know what I really enjoyed. So I went to university to do medicine. Um, and I quite quickly realized that certainly medicine, studying medicine at university, like biological sciences, was not my passion. Really not. I found it very, very hard work relentless and there was very little payoff for me you know I didn't it wasn't it wasn't like I ever got to the point where I was like oh now I enjoy it so I spent two years slogging through the medicine medical sciences and the way my degree was worked was the way my university worked was that you did all of your pre-clinical medicine in two years then you did exams at the end of those two years and you were then qualified to go to clinical school which is another three years in the hospital but in the middle you could do a year of anything else and you could really do anything else. So somebody did Chinese, somebody else did engineering. Um, You could do anything. And it was the first time in my whole education where I had a a chance to choose something, had no consequences for, you know, it wasn't wasn't like, well, you better do this because then you'll be able to go on and do this. And so I did psychology and I was like, my goodness, learning can be a completely different thing to what I've been doing all this time. This is what I want to be doing. And I was like, suddenly I wanted to read the psychology all the time. I was just thinking about it all the time. It was like, I can't go back to medicine after this because I know now that it so could be so different. And I just felt, I feel so lucky that I went to a university that allowed me to do that because I could have gone on. I could have been an unhappy doctor. 
absolutely no question. I would have got, I would have got my medical degree. I would have gone on to be a doctor. And then I would have been like, I would have been like one of those people thinking, hang on a minute, (laughs) when does it start? When does the fun start? When does the life I was promised start? And I think that's probably in a way what I'm, what I mean by, by flourishing. I think what we should be, our education system should be about how do we help children find the things that set them on fire? How do we help them find the things that they love to do? Because that is what's going to make their life feel worthwhile. Whether they do that as a job or whether it's they have end up getting a job that just pays the bills and they do this as a hobby, whatever. But to have that kind of sense of, yeah, this is what I really love. I think that's that's what we should be helping children follow all the way through education. I think the point that you made about almost like children's sense of self-peaking in preschool. (laughs) And then you're on a long, slow descent of not, not losing it because it's natural to lose it, but having it beat out of you is, is really important. And I think there, there's two sides of this that I want to get into because there's the more obvious side of the mental health implications of how we teach our kids, not just the environment that they're in in the classroom, but also the way we teach them about how the world works mm-hmm. and how to think about their reality. Because that's what a lot, a lot of what school is, is it's setting the foundations for this is how reality works. This <laughs> is how the world and society that you live in works. And these are the rules by which you will be existing within it for not not even like enforced authoritarian rules, but just rules of logic, how yep. you will be engaging with it for the rest of your life. And I think the more obvious side of this is the kids who actually struggle inside of the system mm-hmm. and who are they're the, they're the very obvious things like the victims of bullying yeah. and which, you know, that, that takes such a mental toll and we can get into that in a little bit, but you know, the kids who really, they struggle with depression or they struggle with anxiety, whether it's social anxiety or academic performance anxiety, or just a more general panic disorder or something else. The kids who end up medicated because they aren't doing well in the classroom. It's like, well, your child must have ADHD and like we have a drug for that. Um, but there's there's another whole side of this, which is the kids who do very well, like we were just talking about. Yeah. And they get much farther thinking like, I'm doing really well. I'm yeah. I'm successful. I'm good at what I do. But there's this still this sense of I'm doing this because it's someone else's yeah. definition of what success is yeah. and it's not doing anything for me. And I keep checking the box because I keep getting the dopamine hit of you're like, great job. Yeah. You're amazing. And that feels really good. So I keep going and it's yeah. people keep telling me that I'll be able to make money and buy the big house and whatever. Yeah. But eventually that often runs its course. And I'm what, what you just described, this is a very dark example of this, but it made me think one of my closest friends, her little brother just graduated from high school and he got a job working one of the gates at uh, one of the biggest gated communities in Colorado. And one of his very first days on the job, somebody drove out, it's like a resident just like drove out the gate in his truck and like less than a mile down the road committed suicide in his truck. And my friend's brother was shocked and horrified because he was like, what just happened? But he was even more shocked that nobody else that he worked with seemed phased at all. And they were just like, yeah, this happens all the time. He was like, what are you talking about? But apparently people in this community, it's just like a regular occurrence. There's just a lot of suicides here. And it's people who are very successful, working very 
Um, you know, they're like yeah. high level, probably yeah. athletes, business people, who knows what they're yeah. doing to make the money to live in a very expensive gated community in Colorado. But it's not the suicide happy. rate there is <laughs> no is appalling. Yeah. And and it was, I think, really it was shocking for me to hear about because I was like, really? Like, yeah. I mean, I, I guess you kind of expect, but not at that level. But while this is a very dark illustration, I think it's it's worth bringing up as part of the mm-hmm. point. Like you can ride this all the way to its yeah. its you know very Greek tragedy conclusion of being on the top of the mountain and being alone and wondering how on earth you got there and hating the view. Like <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It, it, it keeps going. So I think the implications yes. are much more complex than just my child is depressed oh, in school ab- and, and school absolutely. fault. Absolutely. I I almost think of it as at what point in your life do you crash and real and and in a way i i think that those who crash earlier on in childhood um they have more of a chance to rebuild before they've sort of constructed a life that that keeps them where they are you know like because i'm a therapist so i work with adults as well as children and adolescents and I see women actually, particularly maybe sometimes in their like early forties, and they have basically their life has gone completely from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing because the moment they finished education, they were kind of worried about their fertility. So then they had children, and then they had young children, and then and it's not till they get to about forty, and now their children are a little bit older, and so they've got a little bit of space to think about. And they go, "Where? Who am I? Where am I in all of this?" You know. When did I ever make a decision here? When did I ever think, what do I actually want to do? Because once you've got children, a lot of your decisions about what do they want to do, not about what do I want to do. And so, and so they're feeling like, you know, this was all this promise of at some point you would be able to make the choices, but it's never happened. And when's it ever going to happen now? And now I've made all these decisions, which have kind of backed me into this life that I can't get out of because I've got a whole system set up around me. Um, and I think it does, I think in a way, if it doesn't happen to someone, I mean, of course I'm a psychologist, so I have a biased perspective on what happens because I see people who have problems or who've, who are struggling. Um, but I do think that even people who don't need help to the point of need to see a psychologist, I think at some point there's often this kind of almost like, hang on a minute, what was this all about? Um, and I have a lot of respect for the people for whom it happens earlier on, <laughs> you know, like when they're 13, the 13 and 14 year olds who are like, what is this all about? I'm kind of like, you go for it. Let, you know, you've got a real chance here to really step out of this and do something different. Um, whereas once you're 40, it's, it's actually harder. Yeah. I think, is it, in oversimplification to blame school for a lot of this? I mean, I think it's not just school, it's society as well. But I think that I think that school is very pervasive in children's lives in that I think it goes further than what they're actually spending their hours in school. So if you're unhappy at school, well, you learn things, you get really, really indoctrinated in school and certain things, but but school kind of experiences spans beyond the hours of school, doesn't it? Like, you know, um, particularly for children who are struggling at school, but actually for definitely for the high achievers as well. You go home, you've got hours of homework. Your parent is often very invested in you doing well at school. So if you're struggling at school, your parent will often 
spend hours and hours trying to help you do better at school. So you might spend your time out of school practicing the stuff that you're not doing well at school. So it's kind of like it, it's so, I don't, I think that is something that's changed. I, I don't know whether it has or not actually, but I have this sort of fantasy idea that say 40 or 50 years ago, school was one part of children's lives. And now it feels like it's, it's almost everything that there's not much else because it takes up a lot of time and it takes up a lot of time after school and it's kind of ubiquitous for people to have lots of homework. There's just, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I don't think it is just school, but I think there is something very significant about the way we choose that our young people will spend their lives because we do choose that. You know, we, we're, we're, as a society, we're effectively saying this is the best way for people aged between five and 18 to spend all their time, all of them. We think they all should be doing this, really. And that, that's a big statement, isn't it? We don't make that statement about people at another stage of life, really. We don't say all 30 to 40-year-olds must be doing this, but we do about the 5 to 18-year-olds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the more you think about it, the more of a... Um, it's a very assuming stance to take in many, in many yeah. different ways. It lacks some respect for the the integrity and the self-determination of the child that I think, you know, you talk to kids and it's very easy to say, well, they're, it's, you know, they, they don't understand how the world works. They're yet. kids. They don't know anything. They, <laughs> exactly. they need our help. Yeah. But at the same time, they, they know a lot, especially yeah. about themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And they're learning all the time. And it's about what environment are we putting them in and what environment are they learning from? What are they learning from that environment? Mm-hmm. So do you think how much can, and again, I know this is a very open-ended question because there's so much variation in the different models of schools and in the different parenting approaches and there's just so much here, but how much do you think just changing the schooling environment of a child can serve as an antidote to this, this sort of purposeless advancement through life culminating in some moment of crisis when one (laughs) finally comes to a head and one realizes, wait a second, I didn't mean to be here. (laughs) How much of that can be corrected by a different schooling environment? Or if you can't, if you're not in a position to move your kids out of the schooling environment, but you want to make like a really concerted effort as a family inside the home to counteract it, like what types of things do you think are helpful in yeah yeah it's it i don't want to just freak parents out and then no. leave them go so <laughs> i so no, I, I know there are things you can do yes definitely <laughs> i mean i think that what you can do if your child so I, I definitely think that um children who are in alternative schools or being homeschooled i i see big differences in them and one one big difference that i see is that the teenagers are generally not not kind of switched off about they generally are interested in things and they are wanting to do things and they do want to learn and they're kind of absorbing learning. They're absorbing learning in the way that younger children do really. So I see that very clearly in the young people I see and meet. I think that one thing that um, parents can do if your child is at school is to try and have other values out of the school time. So to push back on this kind of encroaching of school on all the other time that you have. I have always thought it's very unfair that school is allowed to send work home, but home is not allowed to send 
work to school. It seems very unbalanced. Why would it be like that? You know, why can't home say, I really like them to spend three hours today playing Minecraft. Could you fit that into your schedule? That's not allowed. Whereas it's fine for schools to just say, here's your three hours of homework for the weekend. So I think, I think pushing back on homework is a good idea, but I also think it's important to try and find things outside school which meet those basic psychological needs. So I was talking about self-determination theory. So there's autonomy, a sense of being capable, and there's relatedness. I think that often I do talk, the young people who I meet who are doing better, who are flourishing, often have something outside school where they're getting that met. So it, and often it's connection with other adults and these other adults, you know, they kind of end up being mentors, but they're not officially mentors. They're more likely to be like a music teacher or a climbing instructor or a football coach, you know, someone who's there for some kind of activity, which the child likes and who kind of takes on that role of another interested adult for the child. And, and as a therapist, when I talk to adults, often adults will go will think back over their childhoods and they will think of a significant other adult who was really important to them and who they really remember as being valuable and it's often these kind of para para isn't quite the right word but basically not parents not teachers but somebody else who's interested in you and shows and shows you that they're interested in you i think that can make a massive difference for a child but also finding things that they can do particularly if they struggle at school finding things that they can do outside school where they can feel good about themselves. That's just really, really important. And I think part of that is a parent valuing the things that their child does outside school, even if those things are video games. So often well, parents will say, well, I just do, you know, I would be fine if they wanted to do worthwhile projects, but they don't, they just want to play Minecraft. So which I say, you need to get in there and value the Minecraft because that's what they're doing right now. So value it because the, the things that young children and middle childhood children value tend to be things that adult thinks, think, adults think aren't worth valuing, like video games or like Pokemon or like, you know, Barbie. It's, we, and actually, what well, it isn't really about the thing. It's about valuing the things they value. And I think a parent who values the things that their child values, again, makes a huge difference because that child learns to feel good about themselves when they see that their parent thinks this is good too. And their parents like, can I play Minecraft with you? Can we play Barbies together? That makes a massive difference. What does it look like in practice to value the thing that your child values? If you don't personally see any benefit in, benefit in it whatsoever, is it being encouraging? Is it asking questions? Is it doing the thing with your child? Like, what does that actually look like in practice in a way that's meaningful to the child? So I think it depends on the child and very much on their age. If it's a younger child, it it often means doing it with them. So younger kids are usually delighted if their parent says, can I come and join you in your Minecraft world? Would you show me your Pokemon cards? Could we talk about your latest TV show that you're really interested in? Could we watch it together? Younger kids are usually like, yes, great. Teenagers, much more likely to be like, no, go away, not having any of it. In which case it gets harder and lots of parents will say, I, I try to want, and of course the thing is that teenagers are often much better at the things that they're doing than, like they're much better at things like video games than their parents. So they don't want to play with their parents because their parents are going to be no good to it. Um, so with teenagers, I think it's more about being around, showing an interest, being available 
for the kind of moments when they do want to do something or when they spark something or when they're like, you know, when they ask something that might initially seem a bit like, oh, do we have to do that? Like, you know, can I make a cake at 10 o'clock at night? That kind of thing. It's kind of being ready for those little sparks when they're there and finding places where you can connect. I think with teenagers, it's often much more about, say, being side by side, like doing it a bit more indirectly because they're not up for intent anything that feels intense in my experience maybe some teenagers are but the ones I meet aren't um so it's just finding those little things that you can do together finding things moments of connection with them but I think it is different for kids of different ages and you can't there's no one size fits all basically what about the more direct more directly obvious mental health implications of school. So the classic things that people often bring up when they're attempting to to indict the school system for something or other. So anxiety, depression, uh, self-esteem issues, yeah. body dysmorphia, like all of these different things that also have strong cultural components. Like, you know, you watch TV and all the girls look one way and then you look in a different way. And of course, yeah. you're going to feel very self-conscious about that. Like there are other culprits besides just school but it's very hard to escape with within the bubble of school yeah um like it's it's pretty clean cut when you start looking at numbers that it does seem like the mental health issues of our kids are increasingly getting worse yeah how much of that do you think is directly correlated to school what are you seeing there I think there's lots of different things that go on with school so there's the way the school system works but then there's also the impact of being with a group of same aged peers who are you are being compared against all the time. So if you're being compared against them all the time on, you know, maths or English, it makes sense to be comparing yourselves all on body size or, you know, how good looking you are or all the things that teenagers compare themselves on. So I think we've kind of set up this system and I, and I have a strong preference myself for more mixed age communities, basically, because I saw with my children when we were homeschooling that they didn't have a peer group of kids in the same year group at all. You know, we just didn't, I don't think we even knew anybody of exactly the same age. We had older, younger, and it just really eliminated a lot of those comparisons, um, which was really helpful. But obviously that's not something that lots of people can do. I do think that one thing that is happening for this generation of kids in a way that didn't happen before is that they have access to um, social media and they have access to um communication with each other, which means that they never get away from their peer group. So whereas when I was at school, I had a couple of schools I was very unhappy at, but I left at 3.30 in the afternoon and I didn't see anyone from my school or hear anyone from my school until nine o'clock the next morning. Now, the young people I talk to who are unhappy at school, they leave school and they're in WhatsApp groups with everybody in their class and they're often bullied by people and there's stuff that gets posted on Facebook and it's it's tight 24-7. And I can't see how that's not going to be really damaging for mental health because you literally can't get away from it at all. Um, and I think that's something that parents of teenagers need to be really quite aware of. And I know it's a really tricky issue, but I think it's I think that there's a whole, it's a sort of whole level of being stepped up, which mo we just didn't have as kids at all. So it's not part of our experience. And I think there's a level of vulnerability there because of that 
which is multiplied, unfortunately. And I don't know the answer to that, but I think it's something we're going to have to work out because I do think it's it's really destructive of a lot of our kids' mental health. Do you take a anti-social media stance for teenagers? Are you for kids using it and learning how to navigate it? What's your, what's your take on social it's media? It's a really access? good question. I'm very pro... Um, I think it depends on the child. I think I don't think all kids are ready for social media at the same ages. And I think that parents need to be thinking about their individual child and what they think their child can cope with, rather than it being a kind of, you know, you're 13 now, <laughs> off you go. Um, and I think parents do need to be keeping an eye on what's happening because um, because it's about their safety, really. and you cannot protect them from people who might be trying to get, well, who might be grooming them or who might be trying to make contact with them. So I think you have to be aware of that in a way, in a very conscious way, basically. I'm not anti it because I do think they have to learn. I think they're going to be in that world. They're going to grow up into that world. They need to, they need to learn how to use it. But I think parents have to be quite on it. I think just sort of setting them. And I've, I've seen in particular, actually, I have seen in the kind of homeschooling world, 10, nine and 10 year olds on social media who access a whole level of stuff that they're really not ready for very, very quickly. And once they've done that, you kind of can't go, I mean, you can go back, but they, once they've seen stuff that you wish they hadn't seen, you can't unsee it. They can't unsee it. Um, so I think, yeah, I'm definitely not a hands off, just let them go for it kind of thing. I also, there are a few different pieces of the the mental health inside of schools conversation that I want to, I'm going to jump around a little bit. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of different things here that I want to get into. So f the first thing I see stats circulate around Twitter, particularly a lot around um, suicide data in teens and the connection to school, Yeah, like correlating with uh, maybe like, the beginning of the school year and the beginning of the spring semester, like times when kids are going back to school, suicide, it's both successful and attempts uh, spiking at the beginning of the week. Yeah. What, can you talk a little bit about the, what you see in terms of depression and suicide ideation and, and its connection to schooling, schooling. specifically, because the timing makes it look quite damning. Um, yeah. And it's the kind of thing where if this is, if this is as clean cut as it looks, it's insane to me that this is not a thing that everyone is up in arms about. But you know what? There are lots of things which it, it seems like everyone should be up in arms about, like, and I will come back to suicide in a minute, but we know from the research that there are kind of points in the education system where children get referred to see psychologists, people like me, basically, and, and, it's basically at about age five or six where they're entering the education system from play-based system. 11, which is our point where they move from primary school to secondary school, and then 13 or 14, which is our point where the pressure gets put up because they do exams at 16, and that's where more pressure is put on. And the, there's data that shows this, that these are the times where children, basically things start to get worse for them. You know, they things go wrong for kids at these stages. And there's no way that the, these aren't natural stages at which they go wrong. Because if you look at another country which has different flex points, 
you'll find different points at where it goes wrong. So I find it amazing that we look at that and we don't go, hmm, maybe we need to change our system so we haven't got these big increases of pressure and expectations at this point, which is causing so much distress for so much kids, many kids, but no one seems to be thinking about it. So, <laughs> but with the suicidal ideation, the thing I see is that um, lots of schools, in order to motivate young people, will tell them that doing well at school is really, really important. And that if they want to have a good future life, they need to do really well at school. They will need to do well at school. And I meet teenagers all the time who have tell me that they've been told things like, you know, if you don't get your exam results, you'll end up living under a bridge. You'll end up working at McDonald's. You'll never have a, you know, if you want to have a good job, a good life, you've got to get these exam results. And they're not all going to get good exam results. That's just the way of life. You know, some kids in our system, about 30% of the kids aren't going to get good exam results because it's graded on a curve. So we know that they're not going to get good exam results. And those kids, when they start to see that they're not going to get those good exam results, a lot of the kind of talk that's been said to them, which has been meant to be motivational, right? That's what I think that's what teachers mean. It's kind of like, you know, you want to have great life, you go and get good exam results. But it works the other way. It's a flip side where teenagers like, well, so my life's no good now because I'm unhappy and I'm not doing well. And it's never going to get any better because you've basically told me that I'm going to end up under a bridge because I'm not going to get these exam results. So I think there's a really counterproductive thing. And I find teenagers, you know, young people believe what's said to them often, but they also lack a perspective on life. They lack, because they haven't had life experience yet, they lack the ability to see things get things get hard and then they get better. And if people are telling them, basically you're doomed because you're not doing well, doing well at school, they believe that. And they don't see an out. They don't see another way because they think they if they effectively think my life is finished, it's never going to get better than this. So I think that we should be thinking really carefully about what we're saying to teenagers about school and about doing well or doing badly, because I do see that directly in my practice. And I do see young people who are just like, there's just no point now. Or, or if young people have really say they've broken down or they've burnt out and they've actually stopped going to school then they just find it really hard to envisage any kind of future at all because they, just like all the rest of us, have this image of this is what you're going to do. You're going to go through all these steps of school and now they're not going to these steps of school. So what is there? And so I think we need to be talking to teenagers all the time, particularly the teenagers who are struggling about there's going to be other ways for you. We're going to find another route for you. We're going to find other, you know, there's hope. I think hope is just absolutely fundamental. And I don't think that many young people are getting hope from the system. And then when you've lost hope, that's when you start to think that the only way out is to end your life. It is incredibly cruel Mm. that we offer kids one game to play with one set of rules and we make it abundantly clear that by nature of the game, not everyone wins. And so there is going to be a subset of you and it's just a percentage that is not going to be successful. And there's another, there's these gradient, this this gradient of subsets where there are different levels of potential success that are open to you. 
when there are so many case studies and there is so much evidence to prove that that is not the way that the world works. It yeah. is not, you're, we're seeing this little tiny limited band range of options Yeah, when there is an entire spectrum ex- that exists that we're not showing our children. Yeah. And it's not just the outliers. It's like, you're going to, you can either do well in school or you can live under a bridge <laughs> Or you can be Steve Jobs. And those are your three options. <laughs> yeah. like, or a YouTuber. You could be a YouTuber. Right. Talking about like, all different types of things. Or a podcaster. Yeah. Or a Twitter personality. Yeah. Or yeah. an entrepreneur yeah. who runs a local coffee shop because you really like exactly. making coffee. Yeah. And you want to give back to your local community. There's so much. And yet we tell kids, we we freak them out completely yeah. around, especially I find as somebody who, so I was very homeschooled. Uh, I took five tests in my entire life. Uh, three of them, two of them were oral exams given to me by the evaluator that I had to go to. It was just required by the state of Pennsylvania. I had to go and see someone every year who would look over my work and then write a letter that we'd give to the school that said, you know, I hereby certify that Hannah received an adequate education. Uh, I had two oral exams that she gave me, one in third grade, one in fifth grade. I aced both of them. I thought it was really weird. I'm like, why are you asking me to read all these words off a card? Like, okay, whatever, I'll do it. Um, (laughs) One test in they changed the rules in Pennsylvania when I was in eighth grade, where you had to take like an actual timed test, but your mom could, you know, proctor it. So we just set the oven timer and I just sat down and took the test and it was really boring. And then I took the PSAT and the SAT. So the practice test and then like the actual test to the exam to see your college, you know, like for for college uh, applications, which I never actually even used (laughs) because I didn't apply for college. But taking the PSAT and the SAT was so strange to me because I had never been in a classroom taking a standardized test before. And it was so weird to just, the environment was weird. It was so sterile and everybody was like super focused on what they were doing and everybody was kind of stressed. They were nervous about the results they were going to get, which in and of itself is weird because you could take the SAT as many times as you want. So like, who cares? Like you can take it a dozen times (laughs) until you like your score if you want to. But it was so weird for me to feel like I was on the outside looking and like, it felt like I had stepped into a movie and I was just playing a part for a morning. (laughs) Like it was not, it was so foreign to my entire conception of how the world works. But it really made me think like we put so much pressure on kids around tests and we tell them that their entire life trajectory is either going to be unlocked or gated permanently based on how they do on this test. And it's so unfair. It's so cruel to put that level of pressure on a child when, yes, there are irreversible things that can happen to you when you are a child. Like you can... You, there are things that are going to alter the trajectory of your life. A lot of them are just physical though, because if you're, you know, like if you're in an accident and you're injured somehow, like that might affect yeah. you for the rest of your life. Yeah. But if you don't do all on a test, like it's not the same thing as like no. falling 30 feet out of a tree and breaking a limb and, you know, like exactly. having to deal with the repercussions yeah. of that but for the rest of your life. But they feel it's not like the same. Yeah. We put so much pressure on them when we shouldn't be expecting them to have to to bear that. There are responsibilities that we should give them yeah. that we don't. Yeah, like the responsibility to have some level of choice and agency around what they want to be spending their time on. We should not be putting the pressure of if you fail this test, you're your done life is over on them. Yeah, and then I absolutely I couldn't agree more. And it's I think it's insane, so cruel to do that with exams that are graded on a curve as well. You know, when it's like 30% of this group are going to fail, we know they're going to fail because we're going to design the exam like that, but we're going to tell them all that they must succeed. 
And also we're going to tell them all that if they that succeeding is up to them and how hard they work. And so if you don't get, if you don't succeed, it's because you didn't work hard enough. It's just, of course, it's going to create problems. How can it not? You know, they believe us, they believe you. (laughs) And that means they don't see a future. They don't see a way forward for themselves. Yeah. So there's, there's the suicidal ideation that comes from feeling like things are bad now and there's no hope of them getting better. There's the anxiety and maybe depression that comes along with feeling like the things that you're doing now are going to impact the entire trajectory of your future. There's some of the social implications, whether it's the body dysmorphia or again, the anxiety of being in a like trapped in a social setting that is very artificial in its constraints and parameters that just don't exist in the real world where if somebody's yep. mean to you, you just like never have to talk to them again. Exactly. You um, can just leave. <laughs> you just say yeah, no. Yeah, someone's rude to me. I don't go sit next to them every day for the rest of the year. I'm exactly. like, I would prefer not to associate with you because you're not nice yes. and you don't get to do that in school. You have to go and sit down next to the person the next day and act like you don't mind and like it didn't happen and like you don't know they're going to do it again. So of course it's going to cause problems. (laughs) Yeah. So what are some of the other, like, are there other big things that you notice in school? We haven't even touched on the ADHD thing and the, the, the quick, the quick impulse to medicate kids. I don't know if that's where we want to go with this or somewhere else. What are the other things that I haven't listed off here that you also see as being psychological implications in a negative sense of the environment that we've foist upon our children for 12 plus years. So I think the other big thing that I see is the way that all the relationships with adults tend to be hierarchical and based on approval and disapproval. So, um, you know, when you hear a teacher talking you probably had this, but certainly when I was with my kids and they were homeschooled and we would hear a teacher, we would see a class of children out and we'd hear the teacher and we would hear the way the teacher talked to the children. And it was just like, my children just never heard adults talking like that to them. You know, it was just a situation that just doesn't happen. Again, doesn't happen in the rest of life. The way that the teachers talk to the children And I know why they do it. It's because they're trying to control 30 children and it's a hard thing to do. But there's always this level of power over from the teacher. And there's also this very strong approval, disapproval, using approval and disapproval all the time to control children's behavior. And I think for some children, the ones who aren't conforming, they can end up in a really negative environment really quickly because everybody is trying to trying to make them behave better by being unpleasant to them basically by punishing them and by disapproving and showing and they kind of get surrounded in this atmosphere of hostility basically and i've i've met kids i bet so some classes here i'm sure you have it too in the states they have whole class behavior systems. So if one child in the class does something wrong, the whole class loses their playtime or they lose their, they have golden time on Friday afternoons where they can choose what they want to do. They could choose what to do for half an hour or something. They lose it or they lose five minutes of it if one child does something out of steps out of line. So if you are the one child who steps out of line and it might be something like not being able to sit in your seat 
calmly or poking someone out with a pencil, then everybody knows that you have done that to them, basically. And I have met kids who've been shunned by the rest of their class because they are the bad kid and they are the one who is getting who is every who's getting everyone in trouble, you know. And, and again, I just can't think how that could not cause serious mental health problems down the line. But I think then as, with our older kids, with our secondary schools and our teenagers. You know, the research into teenage brains now shows that it's really new and it's really exciting research into adolescent brain development. And it basically shows that between the ages of 10 and 25, there's huge changes in your brains going on. And we didn't used to know that. Like when I studied psychology at university, we didn't know that. And that was because we didn't used to be able to look inside people's brains as they were actually working. Like brain science used to be based on looking sort of people who died. Now you can do functional MRI scans. You can look inside someone's brain as they're alive, as they're thinking about stuff. And they've seen that from 10 to 25 is just this period of amazing reorganization, everything changing, brains, you know, brain development. And the neuroscientists say this is a period of really intense um, vulnerability and also intense opportunity in the same way as the zero to three stages. So, you know, everybody talks about those first thousand days of life, how important they are, how much we need attachment, everything in that stage. No one talks about that for teenagers. For teenagers, it's kind of like, you know, they're past that now. Schools are not set up with attachment in mind. They're not set up with the who who is going to be the trusted teacher that these kids are going to go to. So whereas in our primary schools, we generally have one teacher all the year, you get to know that teacher. You'll have your teaching assistants. You'll have your support staff around the class. This class will know them and they will know the class. You get to secondary school, you move around every hour. You have, maybe you'll see a teacher twice a week. You know, the teacher will see so many kids in a day that they won't be able to remember the names. So it it's like it acts against adults and children having meaningful connections and meaningful attachments. And I think it's really, we they really need it, particularly as teenagers. They need adults who are there to take an interest, adults who are there to, to just get, who get them. And unfortunately, we've set up our schools in ways that prioritize subject curriculum over relationships. And I think that's detrimental to their mental health. How much of an oversimplification do you think it is as, as a starting point for a conversation, not as a conclusive yeah. end to a conversation, but to, to assume that if your child is struggling, that there's probably something environmentally wrong that is contributing to it. Because obviously there are a lot of factors at play mm. in like our, our psychology is incredibly complex. But if a kid is very lackluster about getting yeah. up in the morning and going to school, if they're depressed about or about the state of their reality or they're very anxious all of the time. Yeah. Is it is it reasonable to first examine the environment that they're being put in on, on a daily and weekly basis that's, and that's, look yeah. to that as a culprit or it's... As opposed to what? Yeah, go ahead. What would you do otherwise? Assuming that it is perhaps just part of their brain chemistry or part of their temperament or it's a phase that they're going through. Like I think we assume that especially teenagers are depressed and anxious anyway yeah. is just like, it's like, well, they're just, it's an angsty time. Yeah. You know, they're going through puberty yeah. and there's, they're, they're integrating into a new social reality that is yeah. very different from elementary school. And they're just going to be angsty for a while. And it's yeah. 
fine. Like I do not have children, so I have not had to parent a teenager. So I am speaking merely from accumulated perspectives from reading a lot of other people talking about this reality. But it seems like sometimes we can jump to that side too of like, well, kids just like get upset about things and they'll outgrow it. Yeah. Versus it being environmental. So, I mean, I think that is a certain amount of truth that adolescence is a time of great change and that great change is difficult. And I think, I don't think that I would never say that I think you'd expect children to be happy and that to be contented throughout their whole development. I think, I think you need to have times when things are more difficult actually, and and change is difficult. But I think if it's persistent and they I would, I mean, I think it's always an interaction between the person and their environment. So I don't really think there are objectively, many objectively bad environments, but it's about how does this child relate to this environment and what is their experience of this environment? So that would definitely be my first question as a psychologist would be like, what's happening? Not just at school, what's happening at home, what's happening in their life, what are their friends like? You'd want to look at all the different things because often you're like, okay, well, actually, if we think about that, it kind of makes sense that you would feel like this because of all these other things that are happening to you. And, and actually a lot of the, the sometimes just being able to make sense of it is a, a huge relief for kids. You know, it's like, oh yeah, that's why I feel like this rather than why do I feel like this? I don't know why I feel like this. I shouldn't feel like this because <laughs> that makes everything much worse. I think there's so much more here that we could, if we had more time, we could, we could keep going on this for a long time. There is a lot here to, to break down, but I also know that you have done, you've compiled tons of work on this already to answer additional questions that parents might have. You've written books, you've written extensively. I know you from Twitter, but I know you're very active on other platforms as well. You've written articles for various places. If people have listened to this and they found what we've talked about today helpful and interesting, and they want to learn more about the work that you're doing, where would you send them next? So if you go to my website, which is naomifisher.co.uk, it's kind of the place which links to everything else. But the main places to see my work at the moment are either my Substack, which is a free newsletter. It's called Think Again, naomifisher.substack.com. Or my Facebook is actually where I'm posting a lot of stuff, and I'm Dr. Naomi Fisher on Facebook. Or there are my two books. So there's Changing Our Minds, which is the first book. And then there's A Different Way to Learn, which is the second book. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. (laughs) I don't think I have my (laughs) one here, but yeah. Yeah. Yes. Highly, highly recommend the book. It is. It is fantastic. It's on the short list. I've read a lot of books on education at this point. It's on the short list of ones where I'm like, this is very comprehensive. And this is like, parents should start here. It'll, it'll leave you with many new questions to think about in terms of like what you're doing with your act with your child and their actual trajectory, but it is incredibly illuminating. Thank you. Um, in, in how to, how to start thinking about this and, and again, validating those intuitions. I keep coming back to that because I think it's so important. Like parents have these intuitions. They exist for a reason just because you don't have the expertise to put all of the words on it does not mean that it's not real. Absolutely. Which is why the work that you're doing is so important to help parents find the language for it, to know what to do with it. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this, Naomi. This has been, I knew we'd have a fun conversation just from your book and from reading your Twitter, but this was so much fun. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Good to talk to you.
All right. That's a wrap for this week. Thank you so much for being here. If you're listening on Spotify or Apple, please leave a five-star rating. Ratings are how this show gets discovered by other people and it helps me bring in better guests. And no matter where you're listening, please like and subscribe to the show to make sure you don't miss a future episode. That's all for this week. Thank you so much for being here. I'll see you next week.